As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big subject shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. So I want to do a bit of a thought exercise with you. Imagine you've just been made the President of the United States. Congratulations, by the way. And all of the key defense decisions now fall on your shoulders. What seemed like easy decisions beforehand now seem a lot more complicated. So let's pose just one of these. You're sitting there in the Oval Office admiring a nice desk and two grisly, sharp-dressed generals walk in and sternly brief you that Russia has invaded the Baltic states of Estonia and Latvia and are barreling towards Lithuania as we speak. Your political advisor may tell you that less than 20% of Americans even know where those countries are. Is it worth thousands of American lives to go fight a war in a country that people may not be supportive of? So the general would retort with, well, if we were to do nothing, where would we draw the line? Do we only respond when they get to Poland, when they get to Germany, when they get to London, when they get to Pennsylvania Avenue? This is the first decision you need to make. Are thousands of American lives worth defending the Baltics? Most leaders would argue yes. It's important to stick to your treaties and defend your friends. So you commit to defending the Baltics. But now the two generals give you two different opinions. And the first one says, So we must go in now. Tallinn, the capital of Estonia, will fall in 48 hours, and Riga will fall in 72. And without these key ports being held by Allied hands, supporting the troops will be very difficult. We must keep these bridgeheads open. But you know by throwing troops in so quickly, no one will be prepared. Divisions may not be properly supplied, commanders may be away on holiday, and the only place to pull them from in time is other European nations like Poland and Romania. Is this rapid deployment into Latvia simply just abandoning Poland to save Latvia? You have to do something though. You can't not defend the Baltics. That's what NATO's for. If the US runs away, then the whole of Article 5 is called into question. The alliance may then fracture, and more Russia-friendly nations like Hungary may be asking, well, why should we fight when the US ran? So the second general now chimes in. So we must pull back. We have nowhere near enough men to fight off the Russians in the Baltics. Within a few hours, the ports will be closed, and after that, the Russians will close the one road between the Baltics and the rest of the European Union, between Kaliningrad and Belarus. If that road closes, sir, the men are outside of our reach. We cannot supply, we cannot extract, and we cannot refuel. Putting more men in the Baltics is simply handing them over as hostages in a few days. We need to get every man out of there we can and pull back to Poland. As the president, you're worried about this. This is abandoning these countries. He says, no, sir, we're not abandoning. We need to pull back to Poland, form a solid defense line, and then in two months, once we're fully supplied and ready to go, we can then beat the Russians back with a concentrated, well-supplied force. All of this whilst hoping the alliance of NATO lasts for those two months. So, that's a thought experiment. What would you do? Would you abandon the Baltics? Would you start a desperate defense to make sure you hold the door open 
Do you try and take the forces you have and invade Belarus to hope the Russians may pull away and fight there? There are no easy decisions here. This is a real question facing a US president at the moment. How should the Baltics be defended? And as much as right now it seems like a pretty unlikely scenario for Russia to invade the Baltic republics, it's always better to put plans on paper now, whilst cooler and calmer heads make decisions, than to try and make decisions in the minute-to-minute chaos that is war. And to talk about those plans and what options would be open to you as the president, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Prime Real Estate Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So in you know the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, specifically Crimea and Donbass, uh, NATO came up with its sort of revamped approach to um, the whole of the sort of eastern flank of the alliance. And they have this plan called the 3Ds, which stands for defense, deterrence, and dialogue. So it's it's all a bit of a all a bit of a catchy buzzword. But the dialogue part we won't discuss because it's basically trying to keep lines of communication open so that. Um, red lines are not crossed too much with, with with Russia. But when it comes to deterrence and defense, the defense part is really about reassurance to allies and about these reinforcements that have come after 2016. So I'm talking mostly about the enhanced forward presence, the EFP, which is sort of a, like a spearhead tripwire uh, aimed at um, basically local deterrence by punishment, uh, but it's part of the defense plan of in, in enhancing the level of, uh, of troops and readiness. Um, and that goes on part with the uh, European uh, deterrence initiative from the United States, which is not directly linked to NATO, but very much linked in terms of uh, rotational uh, presence and increasing the sort of spearhead of response. Matthew Beligay is a senior research fellow for the Russian and Eurasian program at Chatham House in London. He's written a number of fantastic papers on Russian and NATO defense doctrines, and we're very happy to have him back on the show today. And then in terms of deterrence, it really is about uh, signaling to Russia that NATO is able to move fast, to move quickly, and to potentially match um, Russian moves uh, in the physical realm, uh, in the kinetic realm, in terms of military forces, should they decide to be a bit more adventurous in um, against NATO countries, but also increasingly in the non-kinetic realm. And with all these discussions that we have at NATO level, with the cyber defense pledge, for instance, what would happen if, you know, if we attribute 
contributed a cyber attack um, with with tremendous kinetic effects uh, against a NATO country that was coming from Russia. What would we do about it? And increasing level of discussions in electronic warfare capabilities and so on. So all in all, a very mixed picture of uh, defense and deterrence. But definitely a work in progress and a, a very quick adaptation post uh, post Crimea, post Donbass. For this discussion, we'll be mostly talking about the Baltics as a whole, the way NATO tends to view them. But in reality, each of the Baltics has a varying stance and degree when it comes to Russia. Can you take us through how Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania view and work with Russia? Absolutely. So the uh, you're absolutely right to sort of distinguish the, um, the the three Baltic states for their diversity in terms of economic uh, dependence, in terms of energy dependence to Russia as well, in terms of the permeation of information warfare um, coming from Russia into these countries. So that there is definitely um, a huge difference uh, in, in their approach. So let, let, let's start with uh, with the you know from from the north to the south. If we start with Estonia, for instance. Um, there's about 25% uh, Russian minorities uh, in, in Estonia. So it's a country that is highly permeable in terms of the sort of Russian presence or what Russia calls its, you know, its, 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 its compatriots policy of reaching out to, uh, to, to Russians abroad in terms of trying to reach the hearts and minds of the population. So R Russians in Estonia generally well um, well integrated in society there is of course always this this disconnect between uh, the uh, in terms of cultural in terms of linguistic in terms of economic and socioeconomic integration so you always have this little bit of disconnect um, between you know mainland uh, Estonia and uh, the regions uh, of Estonia in, in northeast mostly where where most of the of the ethnic Russians live specifically in Narva in this region that is also um, been fueling a lot of attention at NATO and, and allied level in terms of what Russia could do in, in, in Narva for instance what we call the Narva paradox of little green men positioning themselves across the border but in, in general there is uh, you know th this is this is a country with um, a well integrated population of, of about yeah 20 25 percent or so um, ethnic minorities who are of course uh, subject to russian disinformation there's always this uh, exploitation of russian narratives uh, presented by the likes of rt sputnik Pervy Kanal, and so on but they generally fail to amount to um, to a sort of systemic weight of pushing or triggering these Russian ethnics uh, into believing something else than they already read in the in, in the national press. If we uh, if we move south with Latvia in the middle, you have about thirty percent to Russian minorities. So we, we're talking three quarters of a million in terms of population. Uh, so th this this definitely is the the sort of crux of the or the bulk of Russian population in the region. Uh, they are also generally well integrated. Um, and finally, Lithuania, uh, which is less of a problem because there is there is a very small Russian minority at six, eight percent roughly of the population. So we're talking about roughly to 100,000 people concentrated uh, mostly in, in, in Vilnius in the capital. So it, it's, it's less of a problem. There's also a big Polish community actually in Lithuania which the Kremlin is also trying to reach out to uh, in terms of great power politics and uh, trying to distort, you know, the reality of integration of Polish communities in, in Lithuania to turn them against uh, the Vilnius government. So far, you know, it's it's really far from this image that we might have concerning uh, this, inter you know, Russian interference or Rus Russian grey zone operation. 
was to try to stir the hearts and minds of um, of, of local uh, of local populations uh, against central governments and, and use the, these ethnics, these Russian ethnics, in, um, in against the governments. You have, you know, economic penetration, of course. You have uh, funding of gongos of these these. Um, government-organized uh, NGOs paid for by the Kremlin, like the Ruski Mir Foundation, uh, like, you know, these all these commissions of the compatriots living abroad and so on. But they generally do not amount to a lot of uh, influence in these countries. Uh, and they generally do not amount to much in terms of achieving, um, achieving uh, sort of change of you know change of narrative uh, against the uh, against the central governments of, uh, of the baltic states so this is the western front for russia so has russia been building up logistics and infrastructure on the border to prepare for an invasion or is this really an area of russian defense that has been largely overlooked by the kremlin so it has not been overlooked for for a lot of reasons because there's, there's been you know the a lot of Western countries and in NATO in particular have been feeding this sort of, you know, these sort of shortcut analytics concerning Russian intentions, concerning concerning the Baltic states. So you have all these, you know, Narva invasion scenarios where Russia could create a sort of fait accompli across the border by sending a, a disruptive force of little green men um, in Narva and then sort of create a breakaway territory a la Donetsk People's Republic, uh, quote unquote. Um, to to prove that Article Five is not working and that Russia can get away with it, or all these discussions about the Suvalki Gap, for instance, in terms of grey zone operations, where Russia could cut through NATO territory to link up, create a bridge between uh, Russia and Kaliningrad and the exclave of Kaliningrad specifically. So there's always been a lot of attention uh, at NATO level, at you know, at the level of the Allies, on what Russia might intend to do, and th- this has also been lobbied quite, quite actively and effectively by the, uh, by the Baltic states themselves, and good countries like Poland, who have also been, you know, the sort of rainmaker of NATO policy on the eastern flank, to try to raise more awareness on how disruptive Russia has been at the border, and with, you know, with all the proof in terms of intelligence sharing that yes, Russia is basically bas- building force and restructuring the Western military district with more, you know, more capabilities on. Defense, uh, a multi-layered uh, anti-defense, uh, air defense, and area denial systems uh, from the mainland to Kaliningrad, with a strengthening of, of the Baltic Sea as well, with an onus on interdiction operations, you know, anti-submarine warfare, and so on. So yes, there, there are of course signs that Russia is a bit more offensive in its force posture, but this is also a sign we see in all other military districts and a, a sort of a, a sort of a continuity of Russia's military thinking and how they're applying said thinking to procurement and to force posture in general. So there's, there's nothing different that we see in the Baltic Sea that Russia is not doing elsewhere in other theaters of operation in terms of increasing its force posture, in terms of increasing its, its, its uh, what they call defensive you know, capabilities with a very uh, offensive outlook. Um, this, you know, this offense-defense line is no longer relevant in the in, in modern warfare sense. But this, this is also the bone of contention of Russia saying, well, we are defending against NATO's encroachment. And from our point of view at NATO level, it's basically very offensive, high-end capabilities, you know, and a lot of uh, offensive asymmetric enablers like electronic warfare with onus on, you know, speed of you know, preposition of force and so on, cyber attacks and, and cyber warfare. So 
it's 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 a very mixed picture you know in terms of the operating environment so yes russia has been reinforcing its troops in kaliningrad yes they have been you know uh, the, the order of battle is completely different now at the level of the western military district uh, since uh, for, for the past few years because it's been strengthening in terms of force, in terms of positioning of a of force. The Baltic fleet is also uh, going through a sort of revolution in terms of procurement. So right now NATO has a couple of thousand troops deployed in the Baltic states, but how would you categorize their role here? Is it to deter Russia from invasion or to slow Russia down enough that reinforcements can arrive in time in the event of a war? Or are these troops designed to push in and take nearby Russian cities like St. Petersburg only 130 kilometers from the Estonian bases in Narva? How would you categorize the NATO soldiers' role in the Baltic states? Right. So if we, you know, if we take this logic that Russia is all about the initial period of war, about creating strategic surprise and achieving very quick tactical effects and, 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 and tactical gains to sort of do a quick in, quick stop to, uh, to, to, to a conflict and, and remove the tension away from Russia's border as much as possible, creates more defense in depth and and creates more uh, more space for its ground forces to to basically uh, terraform <laughs> uh, vast parts of land and critical national infrastructure and, uh, against the national uh, against the enemy um, that then basically nato's force would be here as a reactive force generally um, specifically because the baltic states themselves have very limited firepower when it comes to ground troops and when it comes to air power have very limited naval capabilities as well to match Russia's presence in the uh, in, in in the in the Baltic Sea and beyond, and also because uh, prepare you know they are highly prepared they are highly maneuverable and then highly um, highly trained units in the Baltic uh, in the Baltic states, but they do not compare to the bulk you know of the Western military district alone, uh, let alone the ability of Russia to field you know other military districts quite rapidly and reinforce the main uh, organic force. So that that is that is definitely uh, a, a huge you know uh, difference in terms of core relation of force. What NATO is intending basically is what they call the tripwire logic. It's it's a bit sad to say it, but basically it's the sacrificial lens of NATO with the the enhanced forward presence that would be there to to, to, to prove the point that, yes, these soldiers, these NATO soldiers were killed by active Russian forces and therefore proving the points that we are in an Article 5 scenario of we need collective defense and this is an act of war. Um, from Russia against NATO territory, and therefore we need solidarity and collective defense, and we need to declare war against Russia. So this is, you know, this this, this very sad logic of a tripwire, which is deterrence by punishment, by showing to Russia that there will be an undeniable cost to moving in force against NATO territory in the Baltic Sea, but also in Poland, where the other uh, the EFP, the uh, enhanced forward presence, is rotating. Uh, between the three bolts and 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 Poland, uh, to 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 show that you know th- this this cannot be this cannot go unpunished, and this is definitely an Article Five scenario. Um, plus, you have a few U.S. reinforcements and uh, striker battalions, for instance, in Poland, and a few uh, a few bits of, of U.S. forcing here, uh, who can uh, who can activate also quite rapidly to uh, to, to match the, the Baltic forces. And, and supplement them in case there, there needs to be a sort of active defense against uh, Russian um, Russian uh, presence in in these countries. On top of that, in the Baltic in the Baltic countries in the three Baltic countries, what is sort of completely uh, unique to them, and you, you find actually that logic in the Nordic states as well, is this logic of civilian defense or territorial defense. 
that you have with the presence of military and paramilitary organizations uh, directly under the uh, the defense forces or national guards, depending on the countries, who are able to mobilize um, a lot of people. We're talking thousands of people, if not tens of thousands in Estonia, uh, quite rapidly and to fill them across the country in all the regions to organize defense and organize lines of communication, organize logistics and material support, and even counter insurgency operations uh, in an act of war against uh, against a state enemy or a non-state actor. So th this is also the unique um, the unique feature of the uh, of the Baltic countries that you have in terms of making the cost of occupation or the cost of Russian advances extremely high because they are focusing on a lot of counterinsurgency and extremely, you know, extremely swift uh, readiness and preparedness of their, of their forces. So for someone who hasn't spent a lot of time in the Baltics, can you take us through what the territory in the Baltics is actually like? What makes planning an evasion here quite complicated due to the landscape? Right. So, as you say, it's 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 a lot of lakes. It's a lot of marshlands. It's a lot of um, it's a lot of territory at the border between uh, Russia and the Baltic states that is not really fit for tanks, not really fit for heavy infantry, uh, let alone massive displacement of troops. Uh, so that would, in any case, if Russia decided to move, you know, the swath of its western major district uh, towards the Baltic states and march on. Um, in, on, you know, march onwards in the Baltic states, it would have, it would probably be very slow in terms of advances and much slower than uh, through Poland, for instance, or through Belarus. Um, so this, this, you know, and then with the necessity, if they wanted to invade Lithuania, to cross through Belarus or to conquer most of Latvia uh, before being able to uh, be before being able to go there, Kaliningrad would be used as a sort of buffer and reinforcement. In terms of air defense capabilities, in terms of electronic warfare capabilities, but also in terms of command operations for the Baltic Sea. Uh, but there, there's probably not enough troops to sustain an, an active operational front uh, in Lithuania, the border, also because Poland would be a bother uh, in the south um, if uh, Russia decided to uh, to move in there. Um, so, you know, the, the crux really is about Estonia and Latvia and the ability of, uh, of Russia's uh, forces to, to crush through Estonia and incapacitate Latvia very quickly uh, at the onset of a conflict and create a fait accompli and sort of stop there or move further if they do want to, uh, depending once again on the, uh, on the uh, strategic outlook. But in any case, this is, you know, th this would not be really fit for ground warfare and heavy advances of, uh, of heavy artillery uh, fires from Russia. So since since Russia is a ground force, basically with a few um, aerial and naval increments, then they would not be able to advance uh, very quickly into uh, Estonian or Latvian territory, um, more specifically Estonian territory, and would, would probably need to rely more on air defense to try to achieve um, counter air superiority, if you will, to negate NATO's ability to achieve air superiority, to use a lot of electronic warfare with reinforcements from Kaliningrad, and and also use a lot of um, a lot of uh, non-conventional tactics, mostly owned through the uh, the VDV, the uh, airborne troops. A lot of sabotage and counter-sabotage operations uh, and a lot of advances of, of non-conventional units to try to uh, to try to uh, catch up with the inability of the, the main invading ground force uh, to move quickly uh, in an in, in open-ended conflict against, uh, against the, the, the Baltic states. Do you think NATO's shows of force in the Baltics is evidence that they're genuinely worried about a Russian invasion of the Baltics 
Or do you think it's all just theater to keep the Eastern allies happy? So that that's the great question, and that's you know that's the the, the nature of the discussions uh, beyond you know an Article Five case in point that yes, Russian forces are undeniably killing NATO troops, and we need to declare war against the Kremlin and, and you know and move move into uh, move into actual warfare against Russia. So you know the the, the debate really is about be, beyond. A NATO response, what would said response look like in terms of the Article 4, which is basically sitting in a room and deciding whether Article 5 will happen, um, is this, this, these very real risks about coherence and unity of the alliance today, whereby if Russia was to move against these countries in a less, you know, um, not as a smoking gun, but in, in, in more sub-threshold, diversionary uh little green you know not attributable forces what would we do and where is the threshold of intervention you know when we need to have these hard discussions around does hybrid quote-unquote warfare constitute an actual aggression or act of war that we need to go into uh, actual you know collective defense uh, for the baltic states is a massive electromagnetic warfare operation that has kinetic effects on you know nuclear power plant or on uh, civil infrastructure critical national infrastructure is it enough to declare war against russia because this is basically an aggression so all, all you know all these discussions are keeping a lot of people awake at night uh, at nato level because we don't really have an answer in terms of what is the exact threshold of intervention and if we do declare you know um, an article 4 uh, meeting then who's going to respond Right? Who's going to pick up the phone and who's going to pledge collective defense or potentially pledge forces? Because the, the, the worst thing for NATO would be to have a, the complete lack of unity and coherence when it comes to responding to a call if the Baltic states are, are attacked or are under duress and need to be, need to be defended. So that, that's also part of the discussions. Um, so NATO's approach really is about reassurance to allies in terms of defense, in terms of you know, increasing the size and the, uh, the, the rotations of the uh, enhanced forward presence. Increasing the uh, the amount of prepositioned equipment uh, by the United States with the European Deterrence Initiative. Um, a lot more discussions concerning uh, concerning the sub threshold uh, interventions. So there, there definitely is you know a lot of defense going on at the level of the alliance, reassurance, strengthening preparedness. Um, and, and so on. In terms of deterrence, it really is about keeping this logic of, of localized deterrence by punishment. We, we're not doing deterrence by denial, which is trying to prevent the Kremlin from doing harm in the first place. Um, so it's it's much harder to achieve denial because we just can't, we know we can't change Russia's cost benefit calculus and we can't change Russia's behavior in intervening against against NATO. What we can hope to achieve is, is make the cost of the, you know, the harder, the harder power intervention from ever happening in the first place by showing that you would basically lose if you if you tried to do that so this you know whether it's working or not depends on where you want to place the ticker on how effective nato deterrence is in the first place or is it because russia is showing risk adverse uh, behavior or sort of self-restraints because it's not in their interest to invade nato in the first place or it's because it's working so you know nato deterrence is working so glass half full glass half empty it's up to you to choose and basically, this is a state of play of what we have now. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. 
To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. The Baltics are an incredibly complex battlefield. But from the NATO point of view, there's a big decision to be made and a big gamble attached to it. You see, above Poland is the exclave of Kaliningrad, a part of Russia detached from the rest of the Russian Federation. And whilst Kaliningrad appears small on a map, it's only about 180 kilometers across, Kaliningrad houses divisions of crack Russian soldiers, Russian air wings, artillery, and enough aerial and sea denial capabilities to make NATO moving east over land or through the sea incredibly complicated. The gamble for NATO is tough though. You see, Kaliningrad is sandwiched between Poland in the south, the Baltic Sea in the north and west, and Lithuania to the east. The only entry point for military vehicles by the Russians is a small highway from the northwest of Belarus through the Savolki Gap into Kaliningrad. The Savolki Gap is a two-edged sword, as yes, it's the only way of reinforcing Kaliningrad, but it's also the only way for NATO to enter these three Baltic states. If NATO were to control this small patch of forest, Kaliningrad becomes a Russian island in a NATO sea. But if the Russians control it, well, the Baltic states are completely cut off, as well as any troops NATO has inside of it. So the more troops NATO puts into the Baltics, the more troops they are potentially pocketing. So how is NATO trying to get around this gamble? And what options does Russia have to combat this? Well, for that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. The Pocket Well, I mean, the Russians have um, always been concerned about what we call strategic depth. Uh, and the Baltic states occupy a, a key strategic location on the Baltic Sea. Uh, it's very close to, to St. Petersburg, which was once the imperial capital of Russia, uh, you know, not that far from Moscow. Uh, so it's the proximity that uh, is of concern to the Russians. Uh, it's, uh, you know, how they would go about defending uh, St. Petersburg in a uh, in a conflict uh, has to be of concern to the uh, the Russian general staff. Uh, but more broadly, how would they uh, protect their assets in in the Baltic Sea? They have uh, the Nord Stream pipelines now uh, are an important element of Russia's strategy, energy strategy in dealing with Europe, which would have to be protected. Uh, so, from their standpoint, the the Baltics are a strategic location. Uh, they would like them. Um, to be non-hostile from their standpoint, they would prefer better uh, if they were actually un, uh, under Russian control. But that uh, does not appear likely uh, any time in, uh, in the near or, I would uh, argue, even distant future. Thomas Graham is a distinguished fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, as well as co-founder of the Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies program at Yale University. Graham was also special assistant to the president and senior director for Russia on the National Security Council staff, during which he managed the White House Kremlin Strategic Dialogue, where he was director for Russian affairs. We're pleased to have Thomas back on the show today. Well, I mean, in Kaliningrad um, is in the Baltic region, right? Um, it 
uh, rightfully should be the fourth Baltic state, uh, but it's not. It's a part of Russia uh, that was obtained at the end of the Second World War, territory taken from, from East Prussia uh, at that time. But it is the, the Soviet, or it was the Soviet outlet on the, on the Baltic Sea, uh, and it remains the Russian outlet on the, uh, on the Baltic Sea. Uh, it is a region that is highly militarized, a, a significant Russian uh, military presence uh, in Kaliningrad, uh, which uh, which they would use uh, to defend um, their their interest in that region, but also uh, it is a region that can be used uh, to uh, if, uh, if if it comes to that to to launch from which to launch offensive operations uh, into Europe itself, not only in the Baltic states but uh, into places like Germany and farther west. So, what sort of Russian military capabilities are actually sitting in Kaliningrad at the moment? You know, it's a difficult proposition, uh, and we've all seen, I think, the uh, scenarios that uh, many have done. Uh, Rand did one a couple of years ago uh, that argued that, uh, you know, NATO would not be able to defend the Baltic states under a, a concerted Russian uh, Russian attack, uh, that if the Russians launched the offensive, uh, basically it would be a question of 72 hours or a little bit longer uh, than that when uh, before they could occupy uh, all of the of the Baltic states, uh, so it is a difficult region uh, to defend. Uh, but that said, uh, you know I'm quite confident that uh, NATO has worked out, um, has done some robust scenario planning. Uh, the Pentagon, U.S. military, has done the same uh, to figure out how we would um, react in uh, in the event of a of a Russian military attack. Uh, and I think yes, uh, we may be in a situation uh, where. Uh, we would have to concede um, much of the territory of the Baltic states in the initial phases of a conflict. Uh, what we were looking at is the way that we could re- regain the uh, the territory uh, over time. And part of that uh, would include how we would suppress the uh, air defense capabilities that are based in Kaliningrad uh, as part of a larger counterattack uh, to liberate the Baltic states. So let's talk about the Baltic pocket problem. Does NATO worry that if Russia and Belarus were to close the 60-kilometer Savalki gap, the NATO forces would be completely cut off in the Baltics, having their only route into it cut off? As, I, as I've already said, I mean, the Baltic uh, states are a, a difficult piece of territory to defend if there were initial Soviet, on, or excuse me, Russian onslaught, uh, which, we, which almost certainly would be launched from uh, Kaliningrad, uh, Russia, there's a close uh, a link between Belarus uh, and Russia as well. So uh, troops through uh, Belarus as well would, uh, would be part of the uh, of the operational plan. Uh, you know, but that said, in the counterattack uh, scenario, NATO wouldn't be focused simply on the Baltics. There would be a horizontal escalation. Uh, NATO forces would also be engaging uh, Russian forces in uh, in Kalinin in Kaliningrad, Belarus, and probably uh, in Russia, in what we call the Russian mainland as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, to answer the question, yes, the Baltic pocket is of concern. It's a difficult area to defend, um, but that doesn't mean that you can't do that. Uh, it's just a bit more complicated than it might be under other circumstances in a different geographic ge- geographic location. So I'm playing a bit of devil's advocate here, but obviously if this war was to kick off, it would be a horrifically bloody one between Russia and NATO. And even putting aside the nuclear angle, 
it would mean thousands of American lives being lost to reoccupy the Baltic states. The last study I read indicated that only 16% of Americans surveyed could even point out Estonia on a map. So do you think the American public would be supportive of a war to liberate the Baltic states with the high cost to American lives? Well, you know, that question has always uh, been around since the formation of, of NATO back in 1949. Um, and there always have been uh, concerns among our, our NATO uh, allies in Europe as to uh, how secure this Article 5 guarantee of collective security really was. Uh, in fact, that's one of the reasons that we had um, military forces uh, deployed uh, uh, in NATO countries so that in the event of a conflict, U.S. forces would be engaged from the very beginning. Uh, you know, there's an old story about, uh, I think it was a German uh, official, was one asked, um, you know, how many um, soldiers or how many U.S. troops did they need in Germany in the event of a conflict? Uh, with the Soviet Union at that time, and his answer was one, and he had to be killed in the initial uh, in the initial attack. That would be sufficient to engage the United States. Uh, you know, we do have uh, troops now located in in, in Poland, uh, in the region. Uh, if uh, there were American casualties, that would only reinforce, uh, I think, the view that the United States had to to engage and respond in some way. Uh, beyond that, I think there is general support for NATO uh, within the American public. Uh, I think a recognition that if uh, a NATO country is attacked, that the United States does have uh, an obligation to, uh, to defend our NATO allies. Uh, and that would meet with, uh, I think, significant support within the American population, uh, despite what the attitudes might be towards places like Afghanistan or Syria, for example which are, I think, quite remote from, from most Americans. I think Europe is a, uh, fits in a much different um, a mental uh, space for, for much of the American public. Both Sweden and Finland are also Baltic states, but neither are part of NATO officially. So if the conflict were to break out, would you think they would get involved? Well, uh, let's put it this way. It would certainly raise concerns uh, in Finland uh, and Sweden. Uh, you know, we know uh, that over the past uh, several years, there have been uh, growing concerns within those two Scandinavian countries as to what Russian intentions are, uh, questions about how uh, they should go about guaranteeing their own security. Uh, there have been lively debates in both places about NATO membership, uh, about them breaking away from what has been uh, a form of neutrality over the past uh, decades. Uh, to being more closely aligned uh, with NATO countries. You know, all that said, both um, Sweden and Finland uh, are part of the European uh, Union. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario under which a, uh, a country uh, in the, the European Union that's not a member of NATO, uh, not being defended if it were attacked uh, uh, by, by Russia or another country. I think that's just the way the, the transatlantic community would work. Uh, you know, because of the, um, the nature of the operations that would have to ensue upon a, uh, a Russian uh, military uh, engagement in, uh, in the Baltic states, I think certainly uh, the American administration uh, would be in co close contacts with both um, the Finnish government and the Swedish government. <laughs> about uh, about military strategy 
uh, and about engaging those countries in one way or another uh, in a military operation against the uh, uh, against the uh, a Soviet a Soviet attack. Excuse me, a Russian attack. If there was a Russian invasion of just the Baltic states, and Russia made no moves against Poland or Romania, do you think the Allies would respond in kind and limit the war to just the Baltic states and the Baltic Sea? Or is the moment the war breaks out, all the chips are down, and war is now everywhere? You know, they're almost certainly in a, uh, in a military conflict would be some, what we would call horizontal uh, escalation. Uh, you know, you have to attack the, uh, the forces that are um, that are um, supporting the, the actual operations in, in Baltic territory. Uh, you know, it's, I think, unfathomable that there wouldn't be some military operations against Kaliningrad, uh, for example, which is located uh, in the Baltic region uh, itself. Um, uh, but again, I think, you know, the uh, NATO would look at the, the actual nature of any, any Russian operation uh, what they thought were the critical sort of uh, nodes of, of support for that operation uh, and be planning ways to, to take out those nodes. Uh, and I would imagine many of those would lie beyond the territory of the Baltic states proper. For a Russian invasion of the Baltics to be carried out properly, how long would it take the Kremlin to prepare to carry out that sort of attack? You know, would we get a month's notice as Russian tanks and artillery build up on the borders with the Baltic nations? You know, you're talking about a, a Russian military action uh, that is unprovoked, um, you know, and, you know, I just don't think that that's uh, what we're going to be dealing with. Um, you know, there would have to be um, some sort of uh, crisis situation in the Baltic states itself, uh, something um, that would provide a, a motivation for the, for the Russians to, to invade the um, uh, the Baltic, uh, the Baltic states, uh, and so um, you know you would see military movement uh, as as a crisis evolved uh, that would give some indication of what the Russians plan to do and on what time scale. Um, so uh, you know this isn't going to be a bolt out of the blue um, for you know for no purpose. Um, so we should have some uh, warning of this, and uh, you know part of the the NATO effort. And certainly the effort in Washington would be to defuse the crisis so that it didn't come to a military conflict. Uh, you know, nobody in Washington uh, wants to engage in a military conflict with the Russians because it always raises the risk of escalation to the nuclear level, uh, which would have devastating consequences for the United States and for Russia as well. Uh, by the same token, I mean, the Russians uh, are... Uh, you know, are no different from us. They don't want to engage in a direct military confrontation uh, with the United States, in part because of the escalation uh, risk. Um, so again, this idea uh, that the, the Russians unprovoked would uh, launch some sort of military attack uh, against the Baltic state, uh, I think is just unrealistic in, in the realm of fantasy, uh, quite frankly. Uh, both sides are going to be very careful to avoid anything uh, that would lead to a military, a direct military confrontation between our two countries uh, and the risk of escalation uh, to a uh, to the nuclear level. Uh, in addition, if you're sitting in Moscow, uh, you have to be aware of the the NATO five. Uh, collect the security guarantee, collect the defense guarantee, uh, and 
to, to run the risk of an operation in the Baltic states, um, uh, you know, that's quite the threshold for that is, is very, very high. Uh, you know, you may believe that uh, NATO is in disarray. You may have some doubts uh, about um, NATO's willingness to honor that Article 5 uh, collective security guarantee. Uh, but the costs of being wrong are enormous. So I think the, the Russians would be quite careful uh, in this regard um, and would try to defend their interest and protect their interest in the Baltic region through other uh, means and direct military assault in the Baltic states. Do you think we're much more likely to see a playbook similar to the one rolled out in Crimea in 2014, where Russian PMCs and little green men occupied Crimea whilst the Kremlin denied involvement? This scenario being much more akin to Russian little green men occupying majority Russian towns in the Baltic states like Narva and Estonia, uh, rather than a full invasion by the Russian army. Well, I mean, you know, the Russians are almost certainly uh, conducting cyber operations in the Baltic states uh, at this point. Um, you know, again, I, I would hesitate to uh, compare the Baltic states and, and Crimea. They are very different situations. Uh, and yes, there is a, uh, a Russian population, a significant population, Estonia, Latvia, uh, to a lesser extent, in Lithuania. Uh, but... Uh, you know, there is very little indication um, that uh, that these Russians uh, are want to be part of the, the Russian Federation. In fact, despite some of the difficulties they have, and, and some would argue some forms of discrimination uh, against them, uh, the Russians in the, uh, in the Baltic states are living quite well, thank you, uh, with standards of living that are at European levels. Uh, much better than they are across the border uh, in, in much of uh, Russian territory, particularly when you get outside of the cities of Moscow uh, and St. Petersburg. Um, so, yes, I mean, the Russians theoretically could probably uh, raise some unrest uh, among uh, the, uh, the local Ru Ru uh, Russian population and use that as a pretext uh, for either cyber operations or a military uh, operation, uh, but the, um, the the chances that they would meet with a, a welcoming population uh, they were, the way they were in Crimea, um, for example, I think is highly unlikely. With this many NATO and Russian troops around this theater, there's always a risk of miscommunication between these two sides spiraling out of control. So to try and prevent this, does the US maintain a red phone kind of situation with the Kremlin to coordinate behind the scenes and avoid misunderstandings around this delicate flashpoint? Well, you know, I, I think the, uh, uh, the point I would make here is that there is some of that. There needs to be more of it. We do maintain some contacts between our two militaries. Uh, you know, this was most active uh, in and around Syria. Uh, when the United States and Russia were both launching military operations. Um, and they, we made a, a, a very concerted effort to deconflict the operation so that we uh, wouldn't have a, an accident uh, that could spiral out of control into the military, uh, in the type of military conflict that neither side uh, really wanted. Uh, you know, in cyber, uh, it's been much more difficult. Um, uh, and we, uh, you know, we cut off many of the contacts that we had with the Russians on cyber issues uh, after the events in Crimea and Eastern Ukraine in 2014. 
Uh, we haven't had a serious dialogue on cyber issues since then. And one of the things that um, we have done in the past uh, few months after the summit meeting between uh, President Biden and President Putin uh, in Geneva uh, in June is to launch uh, a series of uh, cyber conversations. Uh, so we're beginning to get our hands around uh, this. I think we're moving towards what we hope will be a code of conduct in cyberspace um, that will also lead to the establishment of links uh, between our two governments uh, that can be used to try to diffuse um, uh, crises that may uh, may emerge out of certain cyber cyber operations that may be conducted by the United States or Russia or third party, uh, for example. But this does remain an area of concern uh, and an area where we do need to uh, build much more robust links than we've had in the past uh, if we want to manage this in a way that doesn't lead to undue risks of a uh, of a confrontation between our two countries that neither side really wants. This is not a new problem for NATO. It's a scenario that has plagued military planners for a long time now. How do you defend the ports of Tallinn when your tanks are sitting in North Carolina? Do you move in quickly before the Russians can dig in and risk running into a trap? Or do you abandon the Baltics and slowly push them back once all your forces are in place? A scenario that many in the Baltics would see as simply abandonment. Well, a couple of years ago, the US military and the RAND Corporation played out some of the biggest wargaming scenarios ever conducted to answer this question. What should the US Army do if the Baltics were invaded? Can the Baltics be defended? Well, to answer that, we turn to the head author of that very study. Part 3. Commitment Issues So NATO is very ill-prepared uh, to adequately defend the Baltics against significant uh, Russian aggression. Um, the time-distance relationship makes it very hard for uh, the alliance to apply sufficient combat power quickly enough to prevent Russia from essentially executing a fait accompli and occupying the bulk of the Baltic, uh, Baltic states' territory and investing potentially all three, but um, certainly the, the two northern states' capitals of Tallinn and Riga, leaving the alliance in a very difficult uh, place of having to decide between escalating um, or trying to build up combat power in order to retake this territory um, for an extended period during which Russia is threatening to escalate and attempt to break up the, the alliance. Um, but there are things NATO can do that are both technologically feasible and affordable. Um, so far, um, at, at least to my knowledge, they haven't really done most of them. David Schleipak is a senior defense researcher at the RAND Corporation. His areas of focus being the return of the great power competition as the defining characteristic of the global security environment. His current work includes the future of U.S. missile defenses, considerations regarding the introduction of nuclear weapons into U.S. defense planning, and the technological aspects of long-term competition with China. David is also the lead author of Reinforcing Deterrence on NATO's Eastern Flank, Wargaming the Defense of the Baltics. David is the author of the report that many of the guests today have been referencing, and he joins us today. 
So when I envision a, a Russian attack on the Baltics, it's not really about the Baltics. Just like World War I really wasn't about Belgium, um, this war wouldn't be about Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. That would simply be the battlefield where Russia attempted to break NATO. The Russians have no desire to occupy and to own uh, the Baltic republics. What they want to do is create a situation where they can inflict an operational military defeat, a decisive operational military defeat on NATO with the intention of creating strategic repercussions that ultimately lead to, if not the collapse of the alliance, at least its retreat from uh, Russia's own borders and Moscow reestablishing itself as the primary power in East Central Europe. The Baltics come with a big defense planning problem, a reverse Rasputitsa. Now, Rasputitsa is a period of the year, usually during winter in Eastern Europe, when the rains come in and the countries like Ukraine turn into giant mud piles, making moving heavy equipment incredibly difficult. It was one of the major hampering points for the German invasion of Ukraine in 1941, as the tanks and trunks just sunk into the mud. The Baltics, though, have the opposite problem by being further north. In the spring and autumn, the ground is a muddy, swampy mess, but in winter, the ground actually hardens up enough that tank operations are back on the table. The perfect time for invading Ukraine is the worst time for invading the Baltics, and vice versa. Have the Russians devised a way to actually tackle this problem? So I think that there are advantages and disadvantages to the different seasons. Um, I think what people have to remember is that these are relatively modern countries, which means they have roads. Um, they have lots of roads. We've uh, had people over there actually driving along the routes that we would anticipate the Russians using in an invasion. Um, there are primary and secondary routes that would be perfectly amenable to the uh, maneuver of battalion and brigade-sized forces. Um, and the, uh, the the terrain, yes, channelizes the, the attack to a certain degree, but at least to our analysis, there are enough uh, highways and byways uh, across all three countries to facilitate a, a, a Russian offensive. The majority of electricity and power in places like Estonia actually originates from Russia. With that in mind, do you think Russia has it in its plans to cut Estonia's power at the beginning of the invasion and cause chaos in the country to greatly hamper Estonia's response? Absolutely. I think the Russians would take advantage of every advantage they can, uh, they, they can uh, identify. We know that the Russians have already been waging a sustained information operations campaign against all three uh, Baltic republics. Um, I would expect that to continue in the uh, event of a, of a conflict or, or even a crisis uh, and have that be expanded to NATO in an attempt to uh, exploit what are already really existing fissures in the alliance to either slow or indeed prevent uh, a unified NATO response. And certainly things like power, um, gas supplies, all the things that Russia has over the last 20 years sought to manipulate from time to time in order to coerce 
uh, Ukraine and others into into uh, conformity with its wishes, uh, those would all be deployed in, in a scenario like this. A lot of defense analysts say, well, there's simply no point in putting troops into the Baltics apart from a token force, because whatever you put into the Baltics beforehand will simply be trapped and unable to be supplied when the Russians cut off the Savolki Gap. What would you say to that? Um, I, I think that there is a critical mass of forces that is necessary to make it worthwhile, um, which NATO has not achieved. The enhanced forward presence, battle groups that are deployed across the Baltics and, and Poland now, at least to a certain extent, would be self-sustaining prisoner of war camps in the event of a, in the event of a conflict. The Russians wouldn't really even have to fight them. They could just cut them off and contain them. Our work suggests that heavy forces are needed, uh, multiple brigades of heavy forces. We would suggest three or four, which would do a couple of things. First, they would slow the Russians down because they would have to honor the threat represented by these these forces. Um, Because this is not a fight that would be fought along a continuous line, as we imagine the old NATO Warsaw Pact conflict to be uh, uh, along the old inter-German border, but instead would be a force of, uh, a fight rather, of fire and maneuver with a very low force to space ratio. Um, This gives the attacker certain advantages, but provided the defender also possesses maneuverability and fire, um, it too can take advantage of it to launch flank attacks, to maneuver in ways that threaten lines of, of communication and to uh, position itself in ways that actually drive the Russians off of these these roads that we talked about earlier and force force them to deal with some of the, the uh, complexities offered by the Baltic terrain. You need, the, the army hates it when I talk like this, but you need those ground forces to serve as an anvil. Uh, so that you have time for NATO to employ its real trump card, which is its air power, um, to uh, pound on the advancing Russian forces, to attrit them, to cut them off, to interdict them, and basically to prevent that fait accompli and turn this fight from one that, in Moscow's point of view, is sort of a Sunday drive to the Baltic Sea to a major conventional war against an alliance whom they know, if push comes to shove, they can't beat. NATO has some air power sitting in the Baltics at the moment, but the vast majority of it is sitting in the rest of Europe and back in North America. This would mean that for the air power NATO possesses to get involved in battles inside the Baltic states, they would have to cross through either Belarus or Kaliningrad's airspace, both of which are absolutely full of anti-air and aerial denial missiles. So how much threat do these aerial denial forces inside Kaliningrad and Belarus opposed to NATO's air power heavy doctrine when it comes to defending the Baltics? So there are a couple of ways of approaching that. Um, Our work suggested that basing in Sweden would be tremendously powerful for NATO because that would offer a second sort of route of entry for air power into the battlefield that doesn't have to contend with Kaliningrad. Uh, nor even most of the, the, the at least the existing uh, Belarus air defenses. And, you know, we, we know that NATO and Sweden have been in conversations for the past several years. There's been open discussion in Sweden 
about the prospect of, of joining NATO potentially. So we, we think that there would be um, uh, certainly a, a strong probability that in these circumstances, NATO would be able to access air bases in Sweden, which would create a multi uh, a multi azimuth uh, attack capability for the alliance uh, into the Baltic into the Baltic battle space that would help negate uh, the value of of particularly Kaliningrad, which, as you say, is is worrisome. The other thing that NATO can do is take advantage of its generation capabilities. Um, which do have uh, uh, the effect of diminishing the effectiveness of the Russian land-based air defenses. It doesn't negate them. Fifth-gen fifth gen stealth isn't magic, um, but it does complicate the problem for the defender and could create opportunities both to engage those ground forces and also to begin suppressing those air defenses. Um, which then opens the door for uh, even more NATO assets to in engage in the fight. We think there are a couple things that NATO needs to acquire in order for this to be most effective. Um, right now, nobody in the alliance, particularly the United States, um, has any kind of standoff area effect anti-armor munition. Um, Today, if we were to fight them, we would be engaging moving targets with weapons that are not well suited uh, for that. But there's no there's no sort of wizardry entailed in in building these. Um, you know, for 30 years, we've had something called the sensor fused weapon, which is actually a relatively effective submunition against moving armor. And there is absolutely nothing preventing uh, United States or NATO from sticking a little booster rocket or a set of wings on the weapons dispenser so that you could stand off 50, 100 kilometers and still deliver it effectively while being outside the engagement envelope of a lot of those Russian air defenses. In fact, the United States tested such a capability back in the early 2000s, but set it aside because it, you know, they couldn't see any use for it in Afghanistan or Iraq, which was probably true. We also need better defense suppression weapons. Uh, the Alliance still uses the same basic technologies, the harm, the alarm, that were employed in the first Gulf War in 1991, uh, whereas Russia has deployed two or even three generations of new surface-to-air weapons since then. Again, no magic involved. You can extend the range of the weapon. You can put a different seeker on it a multi-mode seeker, you can uh, uh, and put it on the same airplanes you'd use today. Um, but again, you start to even out that range imbalance right now, where today NATO defense suppression aircraft would have to penetrate the Russian air defenses in order to engage them, which is a very sporty course, um, versus again, having more standoff that reduces the number of assets that can Russian assets that can engage, particularly if you combine it with fifth generation, um, you can begin imagining how to uh, um, how you could both apply firepower against the maneuver forces and eat away at the, the density and effectiveness of the Russian uh, integrated air defense system or, or IADs. I want to talk a little bit more about NATO's doctrine here. In the event of the Russians invading the Baltic, 
Would NATO just bomb targets inside the Baltics, keeping it limited like they did in the Korean War, where the Americans would bomb Korea, but wouldn't bomb the Chinese bases across the border that were supplying them? Or do you think they go straight forward and start hitting key northern Russian cities like St. Petersburg or Piskorv? So um, I can't say what they're likely to do. I can tell you that our analysis suggests that attacking things like Russian air bases really isn't very effective, um, in part because there are a lot of them, uh, but mostly because if the Russian Air Force comes up to fight, we're pretty good, NATO is pretty good at killing it in the air. Um, you, you attack air bases when you prefer the adversary air force to remain grounded. Um, really, when it comes to the Russian Air Force, and I don't mean to trivialize the problem, but um, it, is, it is not, uh, to the best of our understanding, a, a world-class air force that can compete with, with NATO um, once, it, once everyone is, is airborne. NATO's own air bases, I think, would be a target for the, for the Russians um, because they would prefer to keep our air power grounded. The the main target that I think you would hear discussion of going after in Russian territory are those long-range air defenses, whether in Kaliningrad um, or in uh, parts of the, the, the Western military district. Um, obviously, going after targets in the homeland of a nuclear-armed superpower is an escalatory risk. And particularly when you consider that those same air defenses in Western Russia that support operations in in uh, uh, the Baltics are also integral to the strategic air defense of the Russian heartland, St. Petersburg, Moscow, and, and so forth. Um, so our inclination, if, if sort of I was in charge of this, would be to... Uh, take advantage of electronic warfare and, and, and other things to try to neutralize or at least reduce the effectiveness of the Russian air defenses and only attack those assets that actually moved across into the, into the Baltics. Um, goodness knows there are plenty of targets there or there would be plenty of targets there um, for, uh, for, for NATO to, to shoot at. Your report suggests that the current NATO forces sitting in the Baltic would not be enough to take on the Russian steamroller as it comes across the border. And the aim of these troops would simply be to slow the Russians down enough for the rest of NATO forces to arrive on the battlefield. So what would be NATO's best course of action if the Russians were to invade? Would it be to meet the Russians near the border and have a big tank-on-tank battle, or retreat immediately to the capital cities and ports and dig in for a hardened defence? I think the, the first thing you would want to do would be commence the maneuver of those heavy forces you have forward deployed uh, in order to make them more survivable and at the same time uh, challenge the Russian control of, of key terrain. Um, that would involve ceding a great deal of territory under current circumstances, um, but you would try to ensure that the Russians can't just barrel down the road at you know 40 or 50 kilometers an hour uh, heedless of any kind of, of threat. I would also really like to see um, some pr- preparation of the battlefield done so that if the Russians do acro- come across the border in force, um, some of the the natural choke choke points that, that you know are are entailed in transiting terrain as as 
complicated as, as the Baltics are, as we discussed earlier. So bridges, um, tunnels, the, the sorts of things that you can destroy or damage to slow down an enemy's advance, to make them move forward engineering equipment in order to, to get past the obstacle. Now, the Russians have a lot of engineering equipment, but it slows you down. And ultimately, from NATO's point of view, this fight has to be about buying time. Um, now, the, the trick there is you really can't do that at the border because the Russians can um, faint at you uh, with no intention of crossing, but make it look like they're going to. And then you face a choice of, do I blow up my infrastructure only to find out this was a bluff? You really have to focus on the infrastructure further back in particularly Estonia and, and, and Latvia, so that once the Russians have clearly committed to an offensive, you have the ability to begin shaping the terrain to, to slow their movement. Um, all of this can help potentially slow down their advance. In our analysis, however, nothing short of the presence of additional heavy forces, uh, armored brigades, um, in the in the region really makes a a, a a distinction that that creates a difference well how long would it actually take to get these heavy forces in there as most of the us's european tanks are sitting in either western france or poland what's the time frame around this so the us army currently maintains a heavy brigade on rotational deployment in um poland and uh, the baltics and really across the whole uh, region from the Baltic Sea down to the Black Sea. And that's the problem, is typically this unit is only deployed as a brigade when it's coming into the theater and when it's leaving the theater. And the rest of the time it's divided up doing training exercises, doing shows, shows of force, uh, conducting presence missions that reduces it to sort of penny packets of combat power versus the the, the true power of a, of a U.S. heavy brigade. It would take it a considerable amount of time to sort of assemble itself from that spread out posture in the event of a, of a conflict. Um, and yeah, additional heavy forces would take quite some time to arrive. If you look at the defense plans and postures of the UK, of France, of Germany, we're talking weeks before they can sort of guarantee that, you know, tank battalions, mechanized battalions um, would be available to, to deploy. So that, that's the challenge and that's, that's the problem. It takes a very long time for NATO to muster its capabilities, which means that under current circumstances, its only option is a counteroffensive, uh, which starts four months, six months uh, after the Baltics have been overrun. Uh, giving the Russians plenty of time to configure their defenses, and I think more importantly, plenty of time to work on the the fault lines in NATO in order to prevent that uh, Western counteroffensive from ever materializing. So what should NATO be doing to better prepare the Baltic defense and demonstrate to Moscow that this is not a fight worth engaging in? So I, I would suggest that NATO permanently station at least three heavy brigades uh, in the Baltics. And by the way, from an American point of view, uh, we can accomplish that without closing a single military base in anyone's congressional district 
in, in the U.S. We don't have to move any forces. Uh, we already have a striker brigade in Germany that could be upgunned to be a heavy brigade and then moved. There is an airborne brigade in Italy that, God bless the airborne. My dad was a paratrooper in World War II. My uncle was a paratrooper in World War II. Um, that airborne brigade is sort of taking up space. It could be converted to a heavy brigade, redeployed. And then you have the rotational brigade that is already present. So just with U.S. contributions, you can you can get three heavy brigades without moving a single soldier out of the United United States. If you if you think about what the NATO allies could do with with a little more effort um, to contribute to that, you can probably get it down to sort of two U.S. brigades and one composite NATO brigade. In fact, the three EFP battle groups, if taken together and sort of re-equipped, um, would form sort of a composite brigade. The second thing NATO has to do, I've alluded to already, they need to uh, deploy standoff area effect anti-armor munitions, which again, we sort of already own. We just need to make the the standoff capability with the, with the weapon. Need to employ, develop and uh, deploy a new generation of anti-radiation missile, um, which again, the United States has one. We are building something called the Argum, which is a evolved uh, harm, and there's an extended range variant of it um, that we're simply not not buying. And then finally, the, the 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 real trump card that the Russians possess is their artillery. Um, one of my colleagues, who's an expert on the Russian army, says it characterizes it as an artillery army that also happens to have tanks. And if you see what they've done with artillery in Ukraine, um, it's 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 been fairly fairly impressive. NATO's fire capability and counterfire capability is extremely uh, rudimentary compared to what the Russians possess. And so you need to see more things like uh, like uh, multiple launch rocket system and, and analogs. Um, and you also could use a longer range rocket than the, the current generation of artillery rocket that NATO deploys, something with a range uh, in excess of 120, 130 kilometers. Again, technologically achievable. Why isn't NATO doing this? Um, part of it is, is, is money. Um, as we know from America's former president, uh, many NATO partners are not meeting their 2% commitment um, in terms of defense spending. Now, that's not quite as clear cut as I make it sound because they make contributions to defense and could make contributions to defense that wouldn't necessarily be reflected in their in their uh, military budgets. You know, building a fuel pipeline from where it currently ends in, in Germany forward through Poland would be one example of infrastructure development they could do that would be extremely helpful to a NATO defensive effort, but wouldn't necessarily show up in their, in their defense ministry's uh, cost accounting. Um, in the United States, we have um, sort of shifted from our single focus on Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and to a single focus on China, um, leaving the efforts to um, uh, enhance deterrence in NATO, uh, somewhat the, the proverbial redheaded stepchild. Now, the good news is you need some of these same capabilities in Western Pacific scenarios. Um, you need better air defense suppression capabilities. 
um, you could you could uh, take advantage of better area effects anti-armor munitions in some in some scenarios. So it's not an either choice uh, fundamentally, but the 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 challenge is first and foremost putting those heavy forces there, which is politically at least. In the United States, uh, not something that a constituency has been has been built for or has even been attempted to construct. And the other NATO allies at this point simply don't have the capacity to, uh, to to do that. Do you worry though that by NATO putting these heavy forces into the Baltics, it antagonizes Russia, instead just encourages them to build up the forces on their side, and we start an escalation here? Or does the benefit outweigh the risk? I think clearly the Russians would rhetorically make a big deal about it and and protest and and fuss and holler. But I mean, let's be clear, whenever NATO does anything to enhance its self-defense capability, Russia throws a tantrum. Um, so there's no expectation that that they wouldn't respond to this. But they've already been re-equipping their forces in the Western military district with, with their latest weaponry. They've been creating new forces. They've been reorganizing them in ways that potentially make them easier to fight in a, in a conventional campaign. Yes, the, the Russians would, would, would holler and, and scream and throw a fit. But what would they do about it beyond what they've already been doing? At some point, the Russian army does run out of soldiers. It does run out of tanks. Again, it's not the Soviet army. The Baltics have been calm for a long time these days. When you walk down the streets of Tallinn, you feel like you're in downtown Helsinki much more than you would in uptown Smolensk. The three Baltic republics gained their independence after the First World War and then lost it when the USSR invaded them in 1939. The rest of the world simply looking the other way, preoccupied with the early battles of World War II. It wasn't until 1991 when the peoples of the Baltic republics fought for their independence and won it. And many of them, when you ask them, would fight for it again. The question now is, would the West defend the Baltic's independence? Can the West defend the Baltic's independence? Or will it just be a repeat of 1939? Let's hope we never have to find out. Thanks for tuning into the show this week. Here at The Red Line, we've been busier than ever creating extra analysis and content on our website, theredlinepodcast.com, and hosting a number of events like pub quizzes and Hearts of Iron games with our listeners. To keep up to date with everything we're up to, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, and Discord on the handle at The Red Line Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at Mike Elliott Oz. Oz is in Australia. This episode on Baltic Defense is dedicated to our patron, James Hunt, who is the latest Patreon to sign up at the time of this recording. This show is only possible with the support of our listeners who donate a small amount of money each week to help us keep this show going, and we cannot thank them enough. So if you feel like you'd spare a couple of dollars, we'd greatly appreciate it. As usual though, here are our three book recommendations. The first is The Russian Understanding of War, Blurring the Lines Between War and Peace by Oscar Johnson for a look at Russia's doctrines towards these sort of conflicts. The second is The Modern Russian Army by Mark Galetti, for a look at Russia's military capabilities. 
And the last and most chilling is Margins for Maneuver in Cold War Europe by Lorien Crump for a look at just how seriously the Russians took the Baltic battlefield. I want to thank our guests this week, Matthew Balige, Thomas Graham, and David Schleipak. All of you were absolutely amazing to work with on this one, and we look forward to having you back on the show soon. I also want to thank my staff, Owen Swift, the producer, Perry Grace and Daniela Zavella, the research assistants and writers, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. I'm incredibly proud of this team and everything we've done here at the show. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening. A good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.